So, we put it out on Twitter. Uh, is religion a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, and I've been writing down some of the responses that have intrigued me. And I just want you to know ahead of time that uh, several thousand people follow me on Twitter, and great majority of them uh, do not go to this church. In fact, many of them are not believers. And, and I wanted to hear from people. When you hear that word religion, what do you hear? And the responses continue to come in even during this service. Like, um, I think religion can be both good and bad, depending on how it is practiced. Uh, Religion is good when it focuses on God's love. It's bad when it's focused primarily on tradition. Um, Religion is bad when its focal point is man rather than God. Religion is confusing to most people and causes division by many. So I guess it can be a bad thing that way. Religion is the name we give to the boxes we try to put God in. Religion is what happens when man tries to apply a formula to God. Religion is what happens when God has left the building. Religion can get in the way of a personal relationship with Jesus. Religion can be a a good thing as long as one has a relationship with God and does not let the clergy do their thinking for them. I'd like to talk to that guy. Religion concerned only with external acts one hour a week while ignoring the other 167 hours of the week is weak. Um, While religion has so much potential for good, it's too easily manipulated and abused. Religion is not bad. The worship of religion over God is bad. Idolatry, in fact. Religion can be good if it does not become your God. And then finally, is religion a good thing or a bad thing? One guy just answered, yes. (laughs) You see, uh, I sense in these responses attention. Attention based on a lot of experiences with bad religion. And my sense is that religion gets a bad rap because of experiences with bad religion. You see, the word religion actually just comes from the uh, Latin word re legare. And re is just Latin for back and legare is Latin for attaching or connecting. So religion is simply the way that men try to reconnect to God. It's the way men try to tie the world together so that it'll make some sense. And there can be a lot of great power for good in this. In fact, uh, there's a verse in the Bible where Paul says to Timothy, be careful of these people that they claim the form of religion, but they deny the power of it. So, so the Bible says there can be real power, good, wonderful power in religion. But we know religion also has great potential for harm, even evil. I think when people are knocking religion, what they're really knocking is the capacity of religion 
to promote exclusivism and arrogance. And I think we all can understand that. I know I can because I have often fallen guilty to the sin of religious arrogance. In fact, uh, just last week, someone said to me after my preaching, Rick, you must be smarter than Einstein. And I kind of stuck my check out a little bit and said, really? Why do you say that? And they said, well, you know, they said that only 10 people could understand Einstein. But man, when you preach, nobody can understand you. (laughs) That is the spirit I think people have a problem with. And bad religion deserves a bad rap. And religion is bad when religion becomes greater than God. See, what I think people really hate is this. Because we know nothing is worse than religious pride. Now, we have to be careful because I know that religion often gets an unfair rap. The way it's presented in much of the music of the day, the television shows of the day, the movies of the day, the media, a lot of the way religion is presented is unfair and the criticism is unjustified. But because we tend to be religious people, we tend to react so defensively anytime people criticize religion and we need to be careful because the fact of the matter is Jesus criticized religion a lot too. We need to be careful defending what maybe God finds offending. Remember, Jesus' harshest critics were religionists. And Jesus returned the favor. Think about it. His biggest foes were people that loved their religion so much they couldn't see their own Savior. They missed God in the flesh because their devotion to their religion was greater than their devotion to truth. And so you find language all through the Gospels like the Pharisees asking Jesus in John 8, 53, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? You hear what they're saying? You're acting like you are greater than the founders of our religion. Remember the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it itself and also did his sons and his flocks and his herds? You see, Jesus was a threat to the way they had always tried to connect to God. And they resented him for it. In fact, Jesus set himself up for a lot of this criticism with statements like Matthew 12, 6. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Now, the temple was the focus of their faith. It was the heart of their religion. And he comes along and he says, I am greater than. And they killed him for statements like that. Isn't that interesting? They did what was so blatantly irreligious in order to defend their religion. And that's not the first time or the last time that's happened. It is amazing to me how people can be so quick 
to justify rank ungodliness when their religion becomes greater than God. Please understand, it is not the purpose of this sermon to bash religion. But I hope it is the result of this sermon that we smash religious pride. Religion has a place, but you've got to keep it in the right place. You've got to hear that God is greater than religion. And let me explain several ways in which that is true. The first is simply that I believe God is greater than our theology. I got this awesome, awesome card from one of our young men in the church named Landry Barker. He's in second grade. He came in the mail this week. Thank you, preacher, for teaching us. Thank you for teaching us about God. I really like all that you have done for us. You and I probably know a lot about God. But most of all, thank you for teaching. Well, you see, what are we saying? What is theology? Because God, you see, is greater than theology. Theology is simply the study of God. It's the pursuit of the knowledge of God. And who wants to claim they're an expert in that field? You can get a PhD in quantum physics or economics or some kinds of medicines or law. But who becomes an expert in God? God says, Isaiah 55, for just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In Romans 11, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, how impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways for who can know the Lord's thoughts. Now, I want to endorse the pursuit of the knowledge of God. What I'm criticizing what I deplore is the arrogance and the exclusivism seen in the body of Christ promoted by people that claim they have such knowledge. We've divided the body of Christ over theology. Do you realize God never wrote a systematic theology? Men do that. Do you understand God is greater than Calvinism? He is greater than Arminianism. He is greater than dispensationalism and all the other theologies that have divided the body of Christ. And what I'm saying here is we've got to understand there is a difference between God and our understanding of God. You probably heard the old joke, what's the difference between God and Jerry Jones? Well, the difference is God doesn't think he's Jerry Jones. You see, I've had many conversations with people who speak to me in such a way to make me think, you think if I disagree with you, I'm disagreeing with God. Well, guess what? I know there's a difference. You're not God. And your understanding of God is not the same as God. 
Now, this is really important because if I grasp that, then number one, I will be more open to the possibility that my own understanding needs some enlightenment. I don't have God completely figured out. You remember Peter, he's on a roof and there's a vision three times and God says, take and eat. And he wants him to eat what Peter considered unclean things. Now, now get this. Peter says to God, no, Lord, I would go against my religion if I obeyed you on this one. Now, how messed up is that? What Peter had to understand is that God was bigger than his religion. I do too. I wonder how willing I am to have my own theological blindness revealed. Many years ago, I wrote in my first study Bible this sentence at the front. Is it truth that drives me or fear that I might have been wrong? so long see the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 all that I know now is partial and incomplete but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely you see it's possible to know a lot about God and not know God And so I'm training, as I've mentioned in the past, to run my first ever marathon. It's almost upon me. And so a couple of weeks ago, I had to do my last long run. I had to get up early and run 20 miles. And when you've got to run 20 miles, you need to get up early. So I'm running, and it's dark. And I have uh, my earphones in, and I'm listening to a podcast of a sermon. And I've been running about three miles, and I'm listening, and I'm watching the pavement, And I just happened to look up and the stars that early morning were brilliant. Even in light polluted Tarrant County, that early morning, you could see them brilliantly. And it was stunning. And I'm running and I'm thinking, I've been so busy listening to some man tell me about God that I missed God. God's glory has been all around me this whole time and I didn't notice concentrating so hard on what some man wanted to tell me about God. So I took the earphones out and for the next 30 minutes until the sun came up, I just enjoyed God. And it was awesome. I saw after a while a distant light moving and I realized it was a plane and it just dawned on me. Man at his most innovative and brilliant can't compare to what God does every night. And right toward the end of the night when the sun was rising, I saw a falling star. And I thought, okay, God, you're showing off now. <laughs> and I just wonder how many times has focus of men's thoughts about God got in the way of God. I'm not saying we shouldn't study. I'm not saying we shouldn't grow in our understanding. I am saying that I'm saved by who I know, not what I know. I am saying that we all have flawed theology. 
God has no other choice but to use people with flawed theology because none of us have God figured out. He's bigger than our theology. And if we would have more theological humility, it'd have more harmony in the body of Christ. Because second, you see, God is greater than my church. He's greater than my theology. He's greater than my church. And I don't know why it is that some of God's people are always tempted to claim that they are the sum of God's people. You remember the story in Mark 9 where the disciples stop a man and John reports to Jesus and says to him, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Jesus said, don't stop him. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who's not against us is for us. You see, no group, no church, no fellowship has a monopoly on God. Now, this has huge implications for our specific congregation. I've heard Dallas Willard say, the most important spiritual discipline a pastor can practice is pray for the other churches in your city. And he hit me between the eyes on that one. And so I've made it a discipline that when I drive past a church that honors Jesus, calls him son of God and preaches the Bible... Whether their theology lines up with mine or not on lots of other things. If they lift up Christ, then I lift them up when I pray. I want every church that lifts up Christ to prosper. You remember a lot of stories right now about Stephen Jobs who recently passed away. Founder of Apple. 1997, the company was about to go under. He and Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, had never had a great relationship. But Bill Gates gave them $150 million to keep Apple alive. And Jobs went on to write in his memoirs that uh, they became collaborators and friends that day. And he has a great line. He says, we had to understand that it wasn't necessary for Microsoft to lose, for Apple to win. And that's how we need to feel about other parts of the body of Christ. And I think this has huge implications for our brotherhood in churches of Christ and every other brotherhood or fellowship or denomination out there. And one thing I need you just to know, I am okay with the fact that the body of Christ at large is unified even though it's not uniform. There's all kinds of expressions of the body and I'm cool with that. Now, you know this is true, and you know that we're different. For example, let me just show you how different we are. Think about changing a light bulb. Now, how many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is just one because their hands are already in the air. How many Catholics? None. They don't use light bulbs. They use candles. How many Baptists does it take? At least 100 One to change the light bulb and the rest to form a committee to approve the change and to bring a casserole. How many Presbyterians does it take? None. God has predestined when the lights will be on and off. How many Pentecostals does it take? Ten. One to actually change the bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. How many Methodists does it take? 
Again, 10. One to change the bulb, nine to attack the preacher because somebody's grandmother gave that bulb to the church. How many Amish does it take? Oh, it's a light bulb. And then finally, of course, how many members of the Church of Christ does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Well, okay, here's the reality. The body of Christ, though not uniform, has unity in Christ. And God has used the different parts of the body to bring needed reminders to the whole body. We need the high church congregations to remind us of the reverence God deserves. We need the low church congregations to remind us God is a God of passion and emotion. We need the Calvinists to remind us God is sovereign. And we need the Arminians to remind us that we have responsibility as creatures of dignity to make good choices. We need all these parts of the body of Christ. So what I'm saying is, it's all right to be grateful for your particular religious heritage, whatever it is. But find your identity in the gospel, not in a group. And what you do then is you will find that no group is the sole possessor of God's spirit or God's mission. Paul said, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, I want you to know that no one speaking by the spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so we need to see the Holy Spirit working wherever he's working because God is bigger than a church. In fact, do you remember that Peter, after that dream, went and met with Gentiles, went into their house, ate with Gentiles. He's preaching to Gentiles and the Holy Spirit just falls on them because the Holy Spirit doesn't need a church's permission to do what it wants to do. And Peter gets called on the carpet by good religious people. And he says this in Acts 11. Since God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I stop the work of God? Because God uses who God chooses. And our allegiance to his name should trump our fondness for our own names. Because God's greater than our theology. God is greater than our churches and our brotherhoods and our fellowships. And one more thing, God's greater than our righteousness. And this is important because maybe no area of religion is more dangerous than this, promoting the arrogant perception that the way I do my religion as compared to the way you do yours is what makes me right with God. And that kind of religion needs to be thrown into the garbage. And by the way, that's not my word. That's Paul's. If you want to give an example of a number one draft pick in religion, it was Saul of Tarsus. He had inheritance assets. His daddy was religious. His granddaddy was religious. You go all the way back. He had performance assets. He was a strict keeper of the law, a devout Pharisee. 
by every standard of religious righteousness, he's the number one draft pick. That's what he thought. Until one day his eyes got opened when his eyes were blinded by perfect righteousness. And everything he thought about religion changed that day. And he would later write in Philippians 3, I once thought these things were valuable. Talking about his religious heritage. He says, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counted all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. You know what he's saying? That Christ is not just greater than me at my worst. Christ is greater than me at my best. He's greater than my sin. He's greater than my righteousness. The cross of Jesus leaves room for boasting in nothing but Christ alone. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, not in religion, not in theology, not in church, in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let me tell you a real clue for how to know whether you're not a religion is right. Right religion will teach that religion can't make you right. And so there's this man who had a dream. And he's standing before the gates of heaven and he hears the voice inside say, What does God want to hear that would allow you to come into his heaven? And the man began to talk about how much he had studied the word and his knowledge of scripture. And the angel said, that's not what God wants to hear. And so he began to talk about how active he was at his church and how fervent he was in sharing his faith. But again, the words, that's not what God wants to hear. So he began to speak about all the good works he had done and all the money he had given to good causes. And again, that's not what God wants to hear. And the guy's eyes hit the ground and he just said, well, I give up. And the angel said, that's what God wants to hear. And it's just a story. But it's true. God is greater than my religion. And if we would remember that, I think maybe we would not let religion get so complicated. It's like the story of the little boy that came in from the backyard. His daddy was a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering at a prestigious university. And so he says to his mama, what time is it? And she doesn't have a watch on and she's busy. And she says, go into the living room and ask your dad. And he says, never mind. I don't want to know how a watch is made. I just want to know what time it is. 
And I wonder sometimes if we haven't done that. We've made reconnecting to God seem so complicated. The religionists in Jesus' day did. It was hard. And one of the experts came to Jesus one time and said, well, okay, what would you say? What is the heart of connecting to God? What is the core of good religion? Here's what he said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love God. Love people. That's good religion. Because nothing is better than love. The power of religion is the power of God-motivated, Christ-modeled, Spirit-enabled Love. It's the standard by which all religion has to be assessed. Paul would say to the Corinthians, you know what? If you have all knowledge, if you can talk theology better than anyone who ever lived, if you can speak in tongues like some people can hum, if you do more good deeds than people can count, But your religion has not produced a heart of love. It is worthless. I know that you remember Mr. Rogers, who taught children for years to make neighbors, be kind. You may not know he was an ordained Presbyterian minister. And he'll tell you the man that most impacted his life was a professor named Bill Orr. And there was a day, Mr. Rogers is in class. It is bitter cold. And they have a break for lunch. And Mr. Orr, Dr. Orr puts on his big heavy coat and he goes out. And then they come back after lunch. And Dr. Orr doesn't have his coat on. And somebody says, Dr. Orr, what happened to your coat? And he said, well... I saw someone that needed it more than me. I think I got another one at home. You see, when religion is wrong on love, then it's not right on anything. Isn't that maybe what James, the brother of Jesus, was trying to say in chapter 1 of his little letter. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. This Sunday is Orphan Sunday. We join with thousands of churches across America remembering that every day in this world, 5,000 more children become orphans. 
That's one of the reasons why, with great joy, I intend to sacrifice next weekend for harvest. I think about Jacob Sianangu in Zambia with those orphanages he's built for AIDS orphans. I think about our mission team in Rwanda getting those kids off the street and sharing the love of Jesus with them. And all around the world, people this church has commissioned are practicing real religion. And I want to help them. I know you do too. Because good religion will do somebody some good. And religion is good as long as God is greater. And so I want us to pray. I feel the need to pray. Pray a prayer of confession and maybe even repentance. And ask God for help. And I ask you to join me. And so, Father, I pray now in Jesus' name. I pray confessing the sin of religious pride. I pray, Father, confessing that too often we have complicated the good news of Jesus. We've gotten in the way of people needing to reconnect to their God We ask forgiveness. And we also ask God for guidance. That we can practice our faith. That we can pursue knowledge of you. That we can live out the life of Jesus. In a way that is good. In a way that helps people. Deliver us God from idolatry. You're greater than what we learn. You're greater than where we go to church. You're greater than what we do. You're greater than what we keep from doing. And in Christ alone, there is hope for us. There is healing for us. And there is a path and a way to what is good. Help us to follow Jesus. For his sake and name. Amen. So let me ask you to stand now. And we're going to sing. And whether you're here at North Richard Hills, West Fort Worth, this is your opportunity to come to talk to someone about Jesus, to confess him. Maybe you're ready to be baptized, but we want you to know Christ alone is our hope and our message. We invite you while we sing.